Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Well, as we say in this episode, he'll always be known as the inventor of the hashtag, but Chris Messina has been central to so many things in tech over the last 20 years or so. He helped Mozilla launch Firefox. He founded Barcamp, where so much Web 2.0 goodness happened and was launched. He co-founded the first co-working space in San Francisco. He helped Google try to grok social with Google+. Oh, and, of course, that hashtag business. My thanks to Chris for sitting down to talk about all of that, and most intriguingly, what's up next for him. Chris Messina, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. I'm super excited to be here. I'm glad you made time while you were in town. Mm-hmm. Um, for I, feel like, I think you're two or three years younger than me, but for people that are m- mostly contemporaneous to me, my favorite opening question is your first computer that was either in, you had access to or sometimes the more interesting one is the first computer that was yours and mm. nobody else's. Um, well, it depends on how you define a computer. Um, I remember that uh, my grandparents had an Atari and I would go play that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that is a computer, but that's not what you would think of as one. The first one that um, was mostly mine by virtue of me mostly destroying it, was an IBM PS2, um, probably in the It didn't happen to be 90s. a Model 25, did it? Because that was my first one. No, I don't think so. It probably yeah. would have been after that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think it ran probably Windows 3.1, and I remember getting into DOS a couple times mm-hmm. and like having no idea what commands did, but I was like reading magazines and the number of times where it was broken, and I had to. my dad would angrily come up to my room and sort of yell at me, and, Christopher! I broke the computer again. Uh, that's kind of how I cut my teeth, like getting excited about computers and what they could do. And um, yeah. it is funny though. Even it's it's weird how that works. But like that three year difference. Like I mm-hmm. got started with the command line, ah. and then I remember when we got uh, Windows three, right? And yeah. it's like, and then I would still anytime I wanted to do stuff, I was like, get me back to DOS, where I <laughs> where I know what I can do with this thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, no. So I mean, that that probably is is very formative for me because. Um, like I grew up mostly being like an artist, um, like just you know drawing comic books and things like that. And um, my grandmother was an artist, and so I kind of imagined that I would be going into art. And um, then when I discovered the computer and like the logic of a computer and how it worked and and um, like programming TI eighty two games and things like that, like I just I don't know, like I fell in love with that ability to control and manipulate the system. Mm-hmm. And so um, and and yet I would be creating art. I remember like Mario Paint was like a big influence on me. Um, it was just a way of like getting into a computer and expressing things that, uh, you know, doing on paper just like would take forever. Expressing things. What's more powerful, expressing things or getting the machine to do what you have in your head? I don't know if there's that much of a difference. Right. I think, I mean, and you're hitting on what has been a theme, I think, of my career and experience with computers. Um, on the one hand, I've been super excited with social technology. And then on the other hand, it's about, um, that, interaction between uh, the memes that are in our minds and the ability to communicate them with increasing fidelity to the computer. And so, yeah, the ability and obviously the awareness of what a computer can do in terms of its output potential, but then also the awareness of your thoughts and how to communicate them into a digital form, 
um, and how to reduce them in their complexity to something that the computer can then reproduce faithfully um, and yet with some kind of expressive aspects, um, I think is, has been just a fascinating thing to witness. And on the one hand, it's structured, I think, thinking for the last 30 years so that much more of the left brain folks have kind of you know, won the internet in a way and they've reduced human experience down to a set of you know, interactive buttons like the like button, for example, like is essentially this you know, kind of explosive zip file of lots of different meanings and messages that um, was like the simplest possible thing that people could understand how to interact with, no matter what their state of consciousness. Um, and then now I think we're starting to just start to see the shift back towards the right side of the brain and towards more sort of like um, emotive experiences and communicative experiences and artistic experiences, and especially in the realm of like AI and conversational agents and um, our, our friends who we won't name lest we activate them. Um, our computers are starting to need to actually behave more like us. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for a long time, we were behaving more like the computer. Mm. And that, to me, I think has been a very interesting theme to see. And so the fact that you started out on the command line, uh, sort of typing direct commands into the machine, meant that, one, you had to know all the commands in your head, more or less, right. like a lookup table of possibilities, whereas a graphical interface allows you to visually explore space and to see what might be possible by tapping and clicking on things. Well, and it's also interesting because note that I said that oh, if I really want to do something, get me back to the command line where I know, like how that shapes yes. what you think is possible. I mean, it's like, like Google, right? Yeah. I mean, this is where we're in this amazing transition to conversational interfaces. And those of us who grew up with a search box are so used to just thrashing and typing things in to get to like the result. And Google works so hard to get the page of results down to the lowest amount of time possible such that you can barely start typing and like the results already show up um, to unlearning that behavior and being willing to sort of have this clumsy conversation with um, you know the Alexas and the, the Google assistants of the world and so children are growing up in that world which is very similar ironically to the command line that you started with yeah and so they will learn the incantations to manipulate those devices in which case the sort of voice command line will be much more natural and native to them and will become the ones who are very slow. I would never put this on the internet, but you should see the videos of my daughter uh, talking mm. to the Google Home. Yes. <laughs> like, Anybody who has the young kids? Having like, arguments with the Google right? Home, yeah. I, like that, that to me, like when I think about the future, that's what I'm looking at and that's what I'm seeing. And so, you know, I, I, I wrote about, you know, bots and, and conversational commerce and, and, and conversational interfaces in 2016. And and that's roughly what I was kind of imagining. You know, one was this return to like the direct sort of manipulation of the command line, but two, that AI and machine learning and voice interfaces would allow many more people to have that ability to command a computer to do things that you want, as opposed to having to go through this jungle of app icons, uh, which, you know, the more apps you install, the more you forget which icon represents which action or verb. Mm -hmm. And so you're stymied by this interface that just grows and grows and grows exponentially to the point where you just you don't even bother. And most apps never get like launched. Yeah. Um, you grew up in New Hampshire? I grew up in New Hampshire. And uh, you were coding websites in high school? I was. Um, and you were even like, were, were you working for, for like some sort of web design company or was it your own company? No, so um, I worked for the first web design company in New Hampshire. Uh -huh. uh, it was called Leading Edge Media. Uh, they had a four letter domain, lemi.com. Uh, um, <laughs> I mean, Talk about like sort of like on the one hand, super early nerds, right? Mm -hmm. People like building you know their own computers and stuff, but also um, people who are 
probably about to ride like a pretty awesome wave because that was, you know, in the mid nineties, I graduated high school in 99. And, um, you know, so these guys were building the first web servers. They had the first internet, uh, things. Actually, it's funny. I remember <laughs> one time, um, I was, I think maybe we were using Rhapsody, uh, which was the, the, or was it real player? Whatever it was, I was using streaming music. Yeah. It would have been real player first. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the quality was like not so great and it sounded like kind of watery or whatever. And, uh, I remember the, the, the boss, um, brought me into his office, uh, at the beginning of one month. I don't remember which month it was and essentially scolded me because I caused some sort of like $11,000 bill for like the, uh, internet access because I've been streaming music <laughs> the entire time. So I learned very quickly, uh, about streaming and about Napster and about pirating content and, uh, that whole world. Um, I think I either heard or read you say at some point that you were almost, um, you almost weren't going to go to college because you felt like you were learning this, this stuff is happening. I'm learning it in real time. What am I going to go to college for? Yeah. You know, that was the funny thing. And that's been a little bit of the story of my life in, in many of the academic settings I found myself in, um, you know, in high school in particular, you know, like obviously school felt a bit like a prison. Um, they're sort of like designed like prisons. And, um, I, I don't know if I had ADHD or something, but certainly I was not very captivated or motivated um, by school. I had a lot of just like interests and I was super excited. Again, I was doing like design on the computer and I was building websites and programming things. Like I remember I, I discovered HTML because um, one of my colleague, colleagues, one of my fellow students. Uh, <laughs> That's a colleague. Hello, fellow kids. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> um, had actually turned in his science homework written in HTML and printed out, uh, you know, back when like Netscape two was around and it just blew my mind that he was like writing this code and then creating tables and then printing it. And, um, so I kind of got into it that way. And then I also was part of first, which is a robotics competition. Um, Dean came in the guy that invented the Segway. uh, lives in New Hampshire. I was going to uh, say he's up, he's from up there. Yeah. Yeah. Not actually maybe 10 minutes from where I, where I grew up. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I was part of like the first competition and like into the robot stuff, but I was also in the art honor society. And, um, you know, another funny anecdote was, um, I, I, uh, back then, of course, this is like during the run up to the dot com bomb, um, was subscribing to all these internet magazines, like the industry standard and red herring and, um, God, it was like upside. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what I would do is I would go into the magazine shops and I would, um, pull out the little insights to, or, uh, insert cards yeah. to, to the subscriptions. And uh, when they'd ask you information about your business, um, you know, how much money do you make, how many employees you have, like all that stuff, I would always check the far right box, which was like, mm-hmm. you know, $50 million a year, like 2,000 employees, like all this stuff. And so they would just send me these complimentary subscriptions for yeah. like, you know, what were like $500 magazines. And so I was like eating up all the stuff. I actually have a bunch of these still saved somewhere in my stuff. And um, I was just so excited about the future and so excited about the internet and so excited about like this whole world and what was happening. And so, yeah, um, so not only did I work for, um, what was that other job? I don't remember. Uh, I worked for that, that web design company and I also worked for a company called Network uh, Network Resources or something where we were doing like the, like I remember someone was describing network architecture to me and showed me a picture of a cloud and I had no idea like what this was or what this meant. And um, that was sort of my first exposure to like thinking about network architectures and distributed systems and like all this stuff. So anyways, yes, yeah, so when I came to thinking about college, I was basically like, um, all the stuff that I'm learning on my own, all the stuff that I'm learning in this web design company, this is the future. And I don't see any reason why I would go to college when all I'm going to be doing is like reading books from stuff that happened like 150 years ago. 
And um, so, yeah, so it was a very close call. Um, but I had an English teacher, uh, Mr. Duffy, uh, that was really adamant about me really giving a hard thought to this because if I did go to college, I wouldn't go to college and that would actually change the rest of my life um, and cut off a lot of opportunities. And so I was thinking about doing design school, um, thinking about going to graphic design programs, but then realized that because of all my interests, like I'd, I needed to go to a university. And I applied and got into Boston University and um, Carnegie Mellon because Carnegie Mellon was further away from home. That's where I went. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the, it's communication design or something Correct. is the degree? So, so. so uh, CMU has two, sort of a split design program, one is <laughs> industrial design, so physical products, you know, car interfaces and stuff like that, and then communication design. And that's interfaces, graphic design, typography, photography, um, probably some advertising, but we didn't really do too much of that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I majored in communication design. What, um, well, actually, what year do you head out west? When did I go to San Francisco? Yeah. So I graduated in 2003, uh -huh. and I stayed around Pittsburgh for a year. I worked for the ACLU. Mm -hmm. I built their uh, database and intake system uh, for their civil liberties um, program, and that was you know eye-opening, but Pittsburgh was just too small for me. So I left and arrived in San Francisco in 2004. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I'd been working with and volunteering for uh, the Howard Dean presidential campaign, and also had been starting to get involved with the Mozilla project. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, like having been a web designer, I knew that like Internet Explorer was like, you know, what that business was built on. But I had also understood that, you know, Microsoft wanted to essentially shut down the web and move everything into ActiveX um, and proprietary control mm -hmm. systems. And um, actually in 2002, I read this paper by this ma uh, Lithuanian mathematician named Andreas Kalkowskis. Um, that was describing what he called an economy for giving everything away. Mm. And essentially was describing the early, um, the early formation of the open source ecosystem. Um, and this is probably like the Stallman era and sort of you know, those folks. And I was just so captured by this idea, partially probably because coming from New Hampshire, it's a libertarian state. And so we're always about getting like the government off your back and just going to the woods and doing your, your throwing in Walden adventures. Um, but um, yeah, so, so I was like, well, the web is super important. And so what Mozilla is doing seems really interesting. And it's taking this, you know, sort of like old, you know, super bloated code base from, from Netscape and turning it into like a fast, modern browser. Um, Can you do real quick? Yeah. Uh, before, I want you to do two things. The second mm -hmm. one being, you just kind of alighted over, or I started to get involved in the Mozilla project. But one of the yes. things that's interesting is how does that happen if for a kid from New Hampshire? <laughs> but before you do that, yes. and don't go into too much detail because obviously anyone can Wikipedia this. Yes. But just give us a quick background of the Mozilla project. Sure. And who was behind it, where it came from, and what the goals were. I'll, I'll do the best I can. Sure. Um, so I, I actually, I very clearly remember exactly how I got involved with the Mozilla project. Mm -hmm. um, and that was because, okay, oh, uh, okay, it's all coming back to me. So uh, <laughs> I'd forgotten this, this detail. So in college, um, I, had, I had started my own um, web design company. So I'd left, you know, Leading Edge Media and I started my own thing and that was called Sandstorm Publishing. I had like a little stupid logo um, with like the section uh, type thing, whatever it's called. I don't know, the glyph, I guess. Mm. Anyways. That's less interesting. Um, but one of the things that I was doing with my clients was uh, trying to figure out how to manage those projects. And the best, what was called in, an intranet back then, this is like not on-prem, this is a cloud service, which is kind of like unheard of. 
um, was a product from a company called Silver Orange. And Silver Orange um, created, uh, what was their internet product called? Well, I don't recall specifically, but regardless, um, they had built this thing and it was great. And one of the, I believe, programmers or designers of that product was Stephen Garrity. And Stephen Garrity had a podcast called Acts of Volition Radio. And I believe it might've been episode 13. He was, his firm, Silver Orange, was doing design work for Mozilla. And he mentioned at the very end of the podcast that uh, this company that he was working with was looking for volunteers to help out. And that was, that was the call to action. And mm-hmm. I'd been listening to the podcast for a while and I was just like, oh my God, yes. Like I love the internet and I love design and I think, you know, this is the future and fuck Microsoft. Like I want to go help with mm-hmm. this. And um, I emailed him and they brought me in to start working with them. We worked on swag and we worked on designs and we worked on... Um, because where are they at this point? Is right, it, it's so, all about raising money when you get there uh, or... Well, I, you know, the project was probably kind of in shambles a little bit, uh, if I recall correctly. Um, you know, they were pushing to launch, I think, if I recall. So, so first of all, the project was called Phoenix. Mm. Um, it wasn't yet called Firefox. Um, I believe there's a trademark dispute about Phoenix, which is why it wasn't ultimately called Phoenix. But, of course, the idea of Phoenix was that it was going to take the, the Netscape code base, which had been, um, I believe, donated for, by AOL yeah. uh, to this new nonprofit. And this new nonprofit, I think, probably was related to Mark Andreessen. I'm not totally sure. Well, because that was their Hail Mary before the AOL acquisition was the open source. That was the yes. last thing they did before the AOL thing. So, 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 I mean, it's also important to probably keep in mind that, you know, first of all, like, this is the, I, I believe, around the antitrust period for mm-hmm. Microsoft. 100%. So Microsoft was turning into, you know, the evil empire um, slash the Death Star slash whatever, you know, villain you prefer. Um and open source, though, meanwhile, was being cast as kind of like this communist agenda. And, um, you know, so it was very interesting to kind of like be in the middle of this kind of, you know, cultural moment. Um, and so anyways, they had this code base for this browser um, that was based on this rendering engine called Gecko. And the idea was to take the underpinnings of that browser to get rid of, so, so there was something called Netscape Communicator, uh, which was a suite of software, right. which included an email client and included... I think a news group reader and included like all these things that were wrapped around this, you know, web rendering engine. And they're like, okay, let's get rid of all that crap. Let's, I, I think let's build an extension layer and let's also add tabs. And that was essentially the innovation that uh, the Mozilla project was, was offering to the world. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. <laughs> 
Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. And I want you to underline that we're saying tabs. You, yeah, it's the tabs you're correct. thinking of. And, yeah. and it, uh, yes, there were no tabs before. Believe me, that was an innovation worth doing a new browser for. I mean, but. Yeah, basically, the value of a, of, of a single tab yeah. was to almost double the power of your computer. Now, also keep in mind that the more tabs you had open, the more likely it was that your computer would die. Right. And modern tab memory management and all this stuff, and while Chrome eats up your CPU and whatever now, I mean, back then, like, it was a nightmare. And so essentially, the web was a forwards and backwards kind of proposition. Yes, you could type something into like, you know, the toolbar or the search box, which used to be separate. Um, but mostly, you know, you'd have one browser window open. And so you had a very linear line of progression in terms of the work that you were doing. Maybe you could open up a new window that was separate, but that was like a whole new instance of that, of that app. Of that it's browser. like a different desktop. Almost. Exactly. Yeah, That's yeah. right. So the amount of productivity that you gain and the speed efficiencies and the fact that Mozilla was supposedly less susceptible to viruses because Microsoft Windows was like this just festering, you know, sort of, you know, you, you just imagine an apple full of maggots. Like, that's kind of like what it was. Um, and so Firefox comes along and it's the faster, safer, more secure browser. Um, and yeah, exactly. So they'd been given this Hail Mary to go build this other project. And, and as far as I remember, Mozilla was like, you know, kind of, screwing everything up and there was like all the all this confusion about what to do and where to go and then this kid out of florida shows up 16 years old probably 15 at the time named blake ross and he comes along and essentially somehow i'm not sure what his social gifts were but was able to cut through the noise and basically say this is the product that we're building and was like this wonder kid and essentially you know i don't know how much of the code base he rewrote but um is owed a great deal of credit for essentially get, getting the product out the door. Mm -hmm. And so once Firefox started to get going and they started to do these regular releases, like I remember, I think Phoenix 0.2 or something and then 0.3 and 0.4 and so on, there was this real momentum that was building in this like, sort of like latent excitement. Um, and I was working in the silver orange intranet, which is called intranet, that's what it was. And um, we were starting to plan for uh, like the community release, kind of like you know getting the the, the community excited about it. And, and remember too, like um, the the Firefox project was also very associated with like Linux because again that's where yeah. the open source developers yeah. were working because there wasn't a lot of open source projects on uh, Microsoft, um, and and the Mac was semi irrelevant um, from a business computing perspective. Well, and so well we we. I forget who came up with the idea for Spread Firefox, but that became essentially this community initiative 
to um, you know, launch the browser using a very similar community donation-oriented program that inherited from what the Howard Dean presidential campaign had mm, done. Mm-hmm. So essentially, we were launching the browser as though it were a president. And not only that, but we actually used the same software. So the way in which I got involved with, uh, actually, that was that was the merger of my worlds. If I remember, yeah, that's what. It, oh man, okay, that's what it was. So uh, first, there was like the silver orange, you know, Stephen Garrity podcast. And then on the flip side, there was this guy Zach Rosen, uh, who I'd met in Pittsburgh and was working for the Howard Dean campaign. And so I wanted to like volunteer and get into politics. And then I was also like excited about the web. And it turned out that when I got to San Francisco, not only did I get involved in the Mozilla project, but then Zach contracted me to be a designer on this pro- project called Civic Space. And Civic Space was this distribution of Drupal, mm-hmm. which was about organizing the yeah. presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. And so then we used the, oh, because of Mitch Kapoor. So Mitch Kapoor was central to all of this because he was funding a lot of it. And he was hosting Zach Rosen in uh, Mitch Kapoor uh, did the spreadsheet. What was this company called? Do you remember? Lotus? Lotus, Lotus. yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, whatever it was, was the core foundation. Right, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah. That was in downtown San Francisco. So this is all new to me. I didn't know any of it, mm-hmm. any of the things. Mm-hmm. I was just like excited to be there. And um, so we ended up using Civic Space as the platform uh, to get uh, Firefox launched. And um, man, I, oh, I remember two people, Dustin Orchard, uh, who had 1976design.com. He's, I think, raising sheep now in New Zealand or something. Mm-hmm. He was one of these amazing web designers. Like the whole like web design, web 2.0 thing was actually, web 2.0 hadn't happened yet. Um, but they were starting to do really, really cool things with just like, you know, browsers and designs and HTML4. Mm-hmm. CSS was mm-hmm. new. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, why am I blanking on his last name? Daniel Burka. Uh, was one of the other silver orange designers. These these are and the, the crazy thing you ask like you know so how does a kid from New Hampshire sort of get into this stuff? These guys were designers from Prince Edward Island in Canada, you know, which is like super small. Um, and so, anyways, Daniel Burke was one of those designers um, from that team. And of course, he went on to Google Ventures and he worked at, at Dig and Pounce, and he's an amazing designer. And um, anyway, so there was all this energy and organizing work to launch the browser. And um, uh, initially, what we wanted to do was buy an ad, uh, the Mozilla Foundation wanted to buy an ad to, to announce this browser to the world. And they felt that it was a browser that was really for the business world, given that you know Microsoft was like you know the behemoth in that space. And they wanted to do an ad that was going to be put in the Wall Street Journal. And I don't remember what exactly it was, but uh, I, oh, I remember. So we were going to do a 10-day campaign to raise some money to buy an ad for the Wall Street Journal. And it was like, I don't know, it was like it was $25,000 or something. And Red Hat was putting in money. And I don't know if like Linux Foundation existed then, but maybe they were putting in money. IBM was putting in money. All these, all the, the Microsoft haters were basically like, yeah. okay, we're pitching all of this money into this open source project. And we're like, cool, we're going to do sort of like a fundraising initiative, just like we did for um, the presidential campaign. Because it used to be, well, it still is, a lot of micro donations. Mm-hmm. But this is when it started, like 2004. Oh, 100%. Right. right. The Dean campaign, yeah. like the, the modern. Like Obama's net campaign right. took everything from, from the Dean campaign. Yes, yes. Exactly. Worth, worth noting. Go on, sorry. Mm-hmm. And so we put up this, we designed a couple of, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, original like growth hacking, I suppose. We designed a bunch of these, uh, what are they called? Some like thermometers, you know, to sort of like show how much money we were uh, raising. Yeah, yeah. And 
Then we also had these little buttons for like take back the web or whatever and to like donate and stuff like that. And um, anyways, we, we put out a goal of raising, you know, another like 25K, but we had enough money essentially from the big companies to buy this ad in the Wall Street Journal. We started the campaign and within 10 days, I believe we'd raised $250,000. So we like 10X'd what we needed to raise um, and suddenly we had way too much money. So we switched from putting this ad in the Wall Street Journal to the New York Times, which then broadened the audience for this considerably. And <laughs> by virtue of being one of the few designers there, uh, I ended up becoming the person who was responsible for designing this ad because mm -hmm. they didn't have any other designs around. Mm -hmm. So I set about thinking about what I wanted this ad to be and what it should look like. And so one, it was like, okay, there's this great logo by John Hicks, you know, that we want to put in, uh, to sort of announce and show people what this thing looks like. It was like super slick and shiny and had gradients, which, you know, weren't in vogue yet. Um, and then I had the idea, well, it would be amazing if what we did was we sort of had that logo, but we used every donor's name, um, to, to make the logo on the second page. So not only is like, here's this product, but then here's all the names and here's, here's the 10,000 voices basically that are telling the world that this thing exists and that open source is real and that, you know, you guys better wake the fuck up. Um, and so what's amazing about that process was uh, we, we had some high-end Power Mac G4, I think. And when I made the vectors to make the logo design, it would crash the computer like 100% of the time. Like it was just such a complex blend because, I mean, you just didn't have the techniques that you had now to do gradients over vector shapes. And so literally I, we, they ended up getting in touch with someone from Adobe, which to me blew my mind that like, you know, here I'd been using Photoshop for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Adobe was like this like vaunted company off in like the cloud someplace. Um, but they just like called the engineer who like wrote Illustrator and had that guy like do the, 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 the technique or whatever it was to make it happen. And um, we were able to get that done and we put it out there and that's kind of how Firefox was delivered to the world. And uh, are you there when like, it starts to get traction, like a million downloads. 10 oh yeah, so that, so that's so so that was all the lead up right, yeah. to like the launch, right? Right, and so then that's you're announcing to the world, yes. and then and then spread Firefox basically kind of like takes over <clears throat> as being the community initiative to essentially build an army of right. people going out and putting on all the websites that we could get our hands on these little chicklets that take back the yeah. web, yeah. Um, and then not only that, but and Blake Ross was really critical in this, and this actually I think in some ways probably informed the playbook that like Zuckerberg would then use for Facebook because, you know, Blake Ross being, you know, this young guy, you know, knew that uh, the real um, ground game would be played in colleges. Mm. And so essentially to train all these college kids before they got into um, the business world to know about, learn about and standardize on Firefox as opposed to learning Microsoft products. And, you know, obviously like the antitrust thing was also painting Microsoft in a bad light. Um, but so on the one hand, there was the college program and that was a decentralized campaign. And then there was the Spread Firefox campaign, which had these weekly kind of goals to drive downloads. And it turned out, and I don't know how many people know this, but that it was primarily porn sites uh, mm. that were spreading Firefox. Because obviously on the porn sites, there was a lot of um, uh, spyware and mm -hmm. viruses and all this other stuff. And this is even before like Bitcoin mining. So I don't even know what, what they were installing or you know stealing all your data or whatever mm -hmm. it was. But um, so that was uh, one of the ways in which uh, Firefox, you know, got a lot of distribution. And the interesting thing was that we had this leaderboard uh, that I designed that was on the homepage uh, that was like a little Drupal widget that would refresh. And, um, you know, we'd always have like the top sites that had driven the most downloads. 
And for the first couple of weeks, it was definitely, like I said, porn sites. And so we had to figure out a way of one of like, you know, filtering those out. And then two, what we found was that um, I think we were doing cumulative downloads. And so of course, whoever was at the top was always at the top. Mm, and so mm-hmm. we had to switch over to um, a differential, like a percentage-based um, uh, contest. And obviously that sort of democratized that a lot more, but it was amazing on the one hand, one, the amount of cheating that went on just to get the glory of being on like the front page of the Spread <laughs> Firefox site. Um, and two, the sheer amount of downloads and, and every week or like whatever it was, whatever the period was, I think it was a week, I would do these like super, I mean, I wasn't very good at Photoshop, but I would make these amazing kind of like flaming balls of like fire and the, with the Firefox logo essentially to announce the various, you know, million point um, download thresholds that we reached until I think we hit 100 million downloads or whatever it was. And then it just kind of like didn't make sense to like, well, I mean, we kept counting, but yeah, yeah. at that point we had pretty good distribution. I'm going to skip ahead to something because, so you're, you're saying that this is slightly before Web 2.0, but it's also, it is things like Firefox that spark off the Web oh, 2.0. absolutely. But also open source, yeah. this grassroots thing, yeah. that was all that was in the mix. It wasn't yes. just about taxonomies and things like that. It was also about this sort of thing that you're describing. So this is what I want to jump to. Please. Bar camp. Yes. Because it was all festival stuff. Yes, that's true. Where it was people looking, like, at, you're saying it's the nuclear winter after the dot. Yes. It's, it's the ferrets putting their head above the ground and being like, oh, you can breathe air again? Yeah. And who else is here? Like, yeah, so exactly. tell me the story of Bar Camp. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you're hitting this, like, so well. Um, you know, after, like, whatever, like, 2002, 2003, you know, people were sort of just, they'd soured on the web and they'd soured on the internet. Um, you know, it was, you know, going to be like, you know, corporate suits and, whatever for, you know, until the cows came home, so to speak. And, and yet there was this growing set of, I think, young people who were excited about the internet, you know, excited about the democratization of publishing and about, uh, again, like the spirit that Mozilla brought of taking back the web and of making this something that we could actually contribute to again that wasn't proprietary um, and that allowed anybody to contribute. Uh, certainly that was the story that I believed and that uh, resonated for me. And so... Um, actually, around that time too. So, so again, I got there in 2004. Um, there was a series of hacker events that I would go to that were organized by um, David Weekly, and David Weekly um, later built a, a, a company and a product called PBWiki, which was one of the early productized wiki products. And um, these events were called Super Heavy Dev House, um, and that's because the previous—I forget if I'm supposed to say this or not—but there was a previous um, set of parties called Super Happy Fun House. Uh, that were happening in the dot-com era, mm-hmm. where apparently there was a lot of, let's say, just illicit activities that were going on, mm-hmm. such that the very last one was shut down with an FBI raid with, with helicopters and sort of G-men jumping into the roof and everything like that. And so he was forbidden from having any more parties like that. Mm-hmm. And so instead he's like, well, why don't we have parties for like developers? And so as there was this sort of like slow rise back up um, of uh, the kind of like geeks and nerds and those folks that were excited about the technology and excited about the future and you know, there's a little bit of a lineage to like the Computer History Club because some of those folks would come to these events. Super Happy Dev House was the place where I kind of learned more about the community and more about demos and more about hackathons and stuff like that. Um, and then also, I should point out that I remember very clearly going to my friend Tantic Chelik's house party. And that's where I met a lot of the web community people, mm-hmm. people who I'd been like idolizing from afar because I was like, you know, not on the West Coast. That's where I met Matt Mullenweg. Um, and I met, let's see... Um, I don't know, I met, there was just like this locus of interesting, smart, talented people that were coming together who were kind of all cut from the same cloth in a way. And um, 
yeah, so you know, after going to a bunch of these super happy dev houses, um, Tim O'Reilly uh, was organizing these events called food camps. And they'd been going on for several years, and this is a way for the O'Reilly publishing empire, which was quite small at the time, um, to get together either existing writers or potential writers, people that they wanted to write books, for example, on Pearl or whatever. Right. And um, it was pretty exclusive. It was held in Sebastopol. And um, uh, I believe it was Dave Weiner and Robert Scoble um, had, had not received their invitations to Food Camp 2005. And they were not happy about this. <laughs> and uh, you know, Dave Weiner is, of course, of uh, XML and RSS fame. Mm-hmm. Robert Scoble was a prominent, I believe, might have been the Microsoft sort of you know blogger influencer. Yeah, at around the time. that time, yeah. Um, and so you had these two, oh, these two men, yes. uh, who were um, blogging about their discontent about not being invited, and. You know, I, I was very new to the scene. You know, I had, you know, a small set of friends, but I didn't know anybody Well, because well. wasn't it one of the things was is they wanted to freshen up that they didn't want the same people every yes, time. So, right. Yeah. So, so there was sort of this aspect of, on the one hand, they wanted to keep the content fresh, like, mm-hmm. you know, and then the faces fresh. And also, this was something that wasn't just a place to go, like, hobnob with other people. Like, this was, you know, this served a business function. And obviously, they need to have more books that are written. And so they need to invite a new people. And they wanted to keep it small enough so that everybody could kind of, like, meet each other. So there was, there was a social design component to this. It wasn't just like, oh, we don't like you, don't show up. But it's like, you know, just because you were invited one year doesn't mean you automatically get invited back. Yeah. And that was something that, you know, those two in particular were very vociferous about. So Dave's on his blog complaining that Correct. he's not. <laughs> and he's like, you know, Tim, o, you know, Tim O'Reilly, whatever, you know, shakes my fist in yeah, the general yeah. direction. And um, I was like, I mean, whatever. Like, Tim O'Reilly is like a big open source guy. I read his little sort of manuscript pamphlet about open source, like, you know, he was big on, on Pearl. I don't recall if he was involved in roughly the Mozilla thing or whatever, but like he just struck me as someone who was, you know, free web, open web, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, well, I don't know why these guys are complaining. Like, why don't we just do the open source thing and take this event and then fork it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they can have their food camp up in Sebastopol and I'm going to organize my own bar camp. And that's going to be the derivative of that event. You know, they document, actually, Tontic was also very uh, instrumental, I think, in encouraging us to, to work on that. Um, they had put the organizing principles of FooCamp on their own wiki. And so all I did was, like, kind of take all their documentation, fork it, create my own project. And um, we should say, if you're not getting it, uh, FooCamp and BarCamp, FooBar, go on. Yes, exactly. And Foo was for Friends of O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's a, it's a programming joke. But yes, um, you have to, you know, be a nerd to kind of get it. So... Um, yeah. So you just reach out and say, "Hey, uh, anyone that didn't go to uh, food camp, uh, it was a little more like." Well, so here's the funny thing. So I'm a lifelong procrastinator. Um, you know, hi, my name is Chris, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say I'm recovering, but uh, I've been putting it off. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I've been looking for like a place to have like bar camp, like on a campground. Like literally I was like, let's do this like outside of the city or, you know, like let's go into the Sierras or something and nothing was happening. And, um, six days before food camp, I was like, I don't know if it's going to happen. It's not going to come together. I was using this app called Plazes and Plazes was this, uh, Mac menu bar app that would kind of, it was, it was like pre, it was pre dodgeball mm-hmm. and it would allow you to kind of like check into a place or say where you were. It's sort of like, uh, find my friends essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happened to be, oh, so another thing that, that we didn't um, discuss was 
Um, after, so, so I tried to get a job at Mozilla, but they didn't want to hire me because they didn't have any obvious skills. Um, and so instead, I ended up joining this other company that spun out of Mozilla um, that was led by Bart DeCrem um, and that Blake Ross was part of, actually, as well as, oh, man, I forget some of their names. It doesn't matter. Well, I mean, it, it matters. But regardless, they started, we started this other company that was initially called Round 2. And the idea was to kind of like do a do-over and negotiate better advertising deals with the big search engines. Um, and not only that, but to build an extension store, like an app store, for Firefox. Because all of a sudden we had 100 million downloads. It's like, well, this is a market. Like, mm-hmm. we could sell to this audience. And so the idea at that point was to like sell a bunch of antivirus extensions and like all this other crap. And I was like, you know, I don't know if we can build another browser successfully um, that competes with Firefox um, and, and just sort of bundles a bunch of stuff. Like, that's exactly where we came from. Like, why would you do that again? So I was looking at what a lot of my friends were doing. And at the time, we were using a bunch of kind of early Web 2.0 um, services like Upcoming.org and Flickr and, and so on to essentially, you know, share our lives, to publish, you know, photos and to share events that we were going to. And I was like, you know, one of the problems with these services is that you have to sign up for them. And every new service that you sign up for, you have to create a new username and password. This is before there was like any of these identity technologies. And so I was like, the obvious place, it seems to me, where um, you know, the user's identity can exist is actually in the browser itself. Mm-hmm. And so if we add the concept of people to the browser, you can sign into the browser as yourself, you can manage your contacts, and then you can just sort of connect your local identity to a bunch of these service providers, and they'll just route the information appropriately. Mm-hmm. And that product was called Flock. And so um, we sort of pivoted round two to become Flock. Um, and I was the lead uh, UX architect or head of product, whatever it was. I made up some title for myself because I was woefully um, under, uh, I wasn't qualified basically. I was gonna, yeah. yeah. I didn't want to finish that sentence in case that's where, where, where you're not gonna go, yeah. but. I mean, it's story of my life is typically I'm just underqualified for most of the things I end up doing. Um, and anyways, so. So that was kind of like happening, and there was this, I guess I bring that up to suggest that there was this burgeoning sense of, of this social web. Yeah. And that was sort of like an important sort of adjunct, adjunct, given that lots of my friends and lots of the people who are ultimately part of the Barcamp community were using their personal blog to represent themselves online. And that included folks like Dave Weiner and Robert Scoble and all my friends. We all have our blogs, and we were publishing all this stuff and aggregating all these things together. And so um, Plazes was... Uh, the way in which I discovered that um, Ross Mayfield from Social Text had just secured the rights to this place in Palo Alto that was down the street from the Flock offices and that they hadn't moved in yet. And so he was willing to offer up that venue for Bar Camp. And so <clears throat> that happened six days before Food Camp was going to happen. And I remember that when I said that I was organizing Bar Camp on August 23rd, 2005, the number of people who emailed me angrily to tell me that they were going to food camp and that they wanted to be able to go to both. And if I just postponed bar camp, that would be way better for them. Could I please do that? And of course my libertarian sort of, you know, um, pit bull kind of um, feistiness was like, no, fuck you, you have to make a choice. You're either with us or you're with them. Mm -hmm. And um, I, 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 you know, we started like blogging about the process. We were very open and public about it. And of course that generated kind of like attention. And although, my thought was that, you know, we'd have like, you know, 20 or 30 of, you know, these new friends that I just made in San Francisco come to this event. 
in Palo Alto, which was like a big deal. Instead, uh, for that event, we had like 300 people show up and people literally camped out. Like they brought tents, um, they slept under desks. It was like this all night sort of hacker, semi, not really rave, rave, um, you know, situation uh, that was all organized using early Web 2.0 tools. Um, And, you know, had a bunch of just really interesting, important people, um, or at least people that would become important. Um, we had product demos, and so, for example, TechCrunch launched at Barcamp, and Pandora launched at Barcamp, uh, Flock kind of launched at Barcamp, and there were just like amazing conversations and discussions. And um, Wired ended up writing a story about it, and it was like just this lightning rod, in a sense, um, for this, I guess, you know, online community to come together and to see each other for the first time face to face. And so after that. You know, we documented what we did, and um, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, there's so much more to the story, but uh, yeah. For, in the interest of time, exactly. I'm going to move us along. But, I, but what you're describing is a movement coalescing, where again, that's not maybe it is. You could argue the start of Web 2.0 happening, but there were things already. Ha- Flickr had already been going on, Correct. and things like that, and Correct. and the whole wikis and all that stuff. Yes. Um, but again, I, that's an interesting thing. Like that's the first time that. All those people meet, yes, and see each other in, in this way. Where, yeah. where what used to be this this sort of discreet set of people that were kind of on their computers and maybe yeah. messaging each other or reading each other's blogs, <clears throat> you know, kind of came together in Silicon Valley to say, "Oh my God, you're into this too. Oh my God, you believe in the social web yeah. too. Oh my God, like you're sharing your life online too." Let's do this really, really quick. But um, it, I'm imagining it's a similar impulse to starting the first co-working space. Yeah. So I mean, very simply, uh, the way that I would that I sort of think about it is that, um, you know, Barcamp was in 2005 and co-working um, happened the year later because we had all these people who were coming together and meeting on a regular basis in coffee shops and you couldn't leave your laptop out, you know, mm-hmm. when you had to t- take a leak. Mm-hmm. Um, and coffee shops were, tra- were starting to like fight back by like, you know, closing up the, the, the power port so you couldn't sit there all day. Um, and also there was a trend to move workers home, right? To basically like do remote working. Yeah. And this is before like the internet was all that reliable. And so people were getting very lonely. So it just seemed like, well, you know, we've got this great community in the Barcamp community of people who are, you know, nerds and geeks on the internet, but they're also social. They like to be around each other. What if we create a permanent space for them to come together and use the same playbook from Barcamp more or less. And, you know, my friend Brad Newberg had essentially been kind of doing this behavior of getting people together on a bi-weekly basis. And um, he came up with, with the, the, the term co-working. And I remember very clearly walking down like the street from Virtual Roasters in San Francisco and being like, Brad, like, we're going to make co-working like a big thing. Like, I can just feel it. Like, I just know it's going to happen. And, um, you know, we got that group together. And shortly thereafter, we started the first co-working space, the first sort of dedicated co-working space called the Hat Factory. And that was in Dogpatch. But back then there was no public transit and it was like way the fuck out there and it was super cold mm-hmm. and like we didn't know how to charge for it. And um, we, we, we ran that thing like horrible communists, which are not great capitalists, for like three months and weren't making any money and decided to shut it down. And then a little bit after that, um, Tara Hunt and I opened up Citizen Space and I think, you know, did it properly. We worked with the landlord to like create this like really great environment that people want to come and work from. And... Um, you know, we kind of made the space about doing what we called self, uh, accelerating serendipity. Um, and part of that was on the one hand to have these desks that you could rent out, but then also uh, an open shared space in the back of the room where anybody could come and drop in. 
And so it sort of solved that problem that coffee shops didn't solve um, in, in providing kind of like a reliable place where you can come and just kind of like hang out for a little bit, do a little bit of work, get some Wi-Fi, um, and, you know, meet people that had, you know, complementary um, skills. You know, WeWork didn't exist. Um, and so we were one of the first kind of like, you know, dedicated community spaces that was like really bringing the internet um, as, a, as a way of connecting people together. And it's, it's funny, actually, SoundCloud came out of uh, Citizen Space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free, whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Um, I'm, my question is going to be, what did you learn at your time from Google mm. or at Google? Mm. Um, and I'm going to help you out. Uh, you, you work... You, you go to you get recruited by Google because they want to get into social and you you were talking earlier about this whole idea of identity tying to the browser and things like that and so like that's yes. what you're really interested in yes. at the time. Yeah, uh, you end up working on the Google Plus thing, which you can talk about <laughs> what you think of Google Plus now. But um, in a broader, this is my life, this is my career sense. I'm curious what your time, how you think of your time at Google now. Uh, what year would this be? So I joined Google in 2010. Okay, uh, like days before Google Buzz launched, and you know I was becoming very aware of the power that Facebook was accruing, um, and because I had been building this social browser, 
Because you're interested in identity. And open source. And open source. Mm -hmm. And freedom. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, making sure that, like, the raw materials... Basically, is it possible to upgrade the web to include the concepts of people uh, and activities and um, uh, the primitives of social networking, right? Because the, the web itself had been built around documents and around sharing information for the military or for academia. And now the web was starting to be used for uh, self-expression, mm -hmm. blogs and so on, photos. Is it possible to then sync that layer uh, of, 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 of programming, of application programming, into the substrate of the web itself, such that the, the browser takes care of things like you know, user profile data, uh, allowing you to connect contacts, and so on. Right? And the browser seemed like the logical place to do that because rather than the, the operating system, um, you, know, you might have like, multiple computers maybe or you know, very early days of like, mobile apps and stuff like that. But so anyways, um, yeah, having realized that the web lacked those protocols, um, I started to get together a bunch of my friends in the open web community um, to work on something that I called the Deezo project, which stood for distributed social. And the idea was to come up with a bunch of standard and open formats and protocols that would represent um, uh, your profile data, your contacts, um, uh, activities. So essentially, like the news feed was a set of activities, you know, which are usually in the format of actor, verb, object. So Chris posted a photo, um, and that would be an extension to um, like RSS or Atom. So in the RSS world, you're essentially publishing a document that has a, a title and like a body. Um, we were saying, well, what if you embellish that to, to add a verb? So it's not always the case that you're always publishing something, but you could be doing something else to it. Um, and then a number of other formats that allowed for different types of interactivity between different websites. And our thought was that if we built these as extensions um, or plugins for WordPress, that we could essentially enable this whole host of independent individuals who are self-hosting their identities in the web to be able to log into each other's websites um, and then connect as friends and then create um, a new type of like privacy regime where you could essentially choose to send you know, your activity feed directly to your friends as though it were a feed of activities. Um, and not, not only that, but that the browser flock could be one of many possible uh, user agents that could make use of this data and facilitate these types of interactions. And so the fact that we'd done a pretty good job of marshalling these formats forward, and I will say, like, I'm not an engineer. I just worked with engineers and I tried to just continue to convene us and bring us together. Um, like there was a lot of people that were involved in this effort. Um, the fact that I was able to do that, I guess, put me in the position of looking like a kind of developer advocate. And given that Google realized that um, they didn't really want to build a social network. They just want to index all the world's social data. Mm -hmm. And so the way to get that social data was through these types of feeds that we were starting to you know, get produced out of WordPress blogs. They're like, why don't you come here and do that? Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, we hired the top contributors to that project that you were working with, mm -hmm. um, including Joseph Smarr and Bill <clears throat> Norris. And so, um, yeah, they brought me in, and you know, I was all, once again completely um, not qualified to be a developer advocate because I really didn't even code. Um, but I could kind of speak the language of of, of developers and designers and product people, um, and so I immediately kind of got involved in that and. Um, I don't think I really wanted to be a developer advocate, but I realized that Google needed a developer, you know, sort of flag to plant in the ground because at the time they put all their developer documentation on Google Code, and Google Code was insufficient, I thought, as a brand to attract all these developers that were starting to 
um, patronize uh, uh, new social platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And they actually hired designers to work in their developer docs. So I was like, we need a new platform for that. And so that's, uh, I, I spent six months building and creating the, the project that uh, was launched as Google Developers. Um, and so then, because I'd done all the design of that project, I then interviewed within Google to then become a UX designer on Google Plus, where I worked on sign-in and the Google profile. So what am I taking takeaways from that time period? Yeah. Well, that's so, the first time that you work with a big with a big company. Yeah. And so my venturing into Google uh, was like selling out, and I kind of the way in which I was effective in organizing all these different people to develop these formats and protocols for the social web was by being independent. So I could go into any company and talk to anybody anywhere and essentially convince them to join this project and to work on this thing that I thought was so important to the internet. And then if I went to Google, that was essentially pledging allegiance to one of the major players and would then mean that I would no longer be able to participate in those conversations. Um, and, and yet I also knew that having a single identity provider for the internet, i.e. Facebook, would be bad for freedom and would be bad for the internet. And I was, I finally, I think, had a job offer from Mozilla and um, was choosing between going to either Mozilla or Google. And when I stood back, I was like, well, you know, the reality is that if I want to fight this battle, I have to fight on a fucking aircraft carrier and that's not Mozilla. And so I have to go on to Google and use that platform to promote these ideas. And I think it was the right call, but Google didn't have it in its DNA to build a product, specifically like a mobile first social product that anybody would ever want to use. Because frankly, the people that work at Google, they just don't have the same instincts that most people have. Um, Whereas Zuckerberg is much better at observing human behavior and then building products to surf that behavior. Mm. Whereas Google is much more high-minded and academic in how they want people to behave, Mm. um, at least in terms of I think social products. And so that dichotomy, I think, ultimately cost Google the battle. Although now, of course, they just use kind of statistical models to understand what people are going to do. And so they don't even need you to like add your friends and say what you're doing. Now they get the data through all these other sources. So it's almost way worse. Uh, All right. One of the reasons why I haven't reached out to you for years and years and years, and I feel like everyone must say this to you at some point, like, do you... Are you tired of telling the story of the hashtag? <laughs> no. Uh, one, I mean, I appreciate, one, the, the ability to provide all that context, all that backdrop. Let me stop you for a second. Please. How do you feel about the fact that your obituary, when it will be written... <laughs> hashtag rip. <laughs> the, uh, bottom line, the, the inventor of the hashtag died today. But right, right. You're, yeah. you're cool with that. Um, I am, uh, because of what it represents. Of all the, I mean... I think, except for OAuth, I, I would say, which was a su- success mm-hmm. uh, from that the the open social, yeah, uh, open yeah. social, but like from the social web era, mm-hmm. um, the hashtag is the one thing that I can point to that worked, that did the thing that I wanted it to do, mm. which was to create more competition between players in the marketplace and to basically create a bigger pie than any one platform could offer. So, the hashtag derived from this observation that if you wanted to create interoperability between all these different parties and players, you had to have agreement. And in some ways, it's like a horrible statement on, uh, on, on humankind that the only thing that I could get people to agree on was a single character in front of a, you know, a, a <laughs> phrase, right, mm-hmm. uh, of all the protocols that we worked on. 
Um, but it also demonstrates in so many ways, like the sort of like humbleness of ideas and how if you plant them in the right moment with the right sort of nutrients and the right sunlight, um, these things can sort of, you know, as saplings break through the concrete and eventually survive. Um, and like I was saying before, my ability to be independent as an independent person, I was able to go to all the app makers that were building apps on Twitter's API right. and convince them that this was a good idea because Twitter thought it was a stupid idea. I was going to say, tell that story real quick. So it's it's 2007, like August of 2007 or something that, that you propose it. Um, and I think you literally go to Twitter and you're like, hey, guys, you should support this. Yes. And they say... Yes. So, so also, I want to revise myself. I think the first bar camp was August 7th, 2005, yes. whereas the hashtag was August 23rd. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, the, 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 what, had, what had been happening was um, in uh, March of that year, right? So this is 2007. I believe Twitter came out either the previous year or March that year mm-hmm. um, at South by Southwest. Right, right. And so there's a bunch of people there who are using Twitter for the first time and are broadcasting their status updates, or maybe it was the year before, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, and crucial to this is that it's uh, it's not the smartphone area yet, and Twitter, people always forget this, was designed to be used SMS. Correct. Right. Yes. So this is this is like so critical, right? Yeah. Because there was such a, in a way, set of pressures that could, you know, form this diamond in the way that it was, that it would like last and work. And so you're right. You know, if Twitter came out in March of 2008, Seven. So let's say or seven. six. Yeah, whatever. Six, right? but you know what? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. really matter. That's hazy. Twitter first. <laughs> yeah. iPhone comes out June yeah. of 2007, right? And so uh, I think, you know, there was like this, this sort of primordial time where we were trying to figure out what Twitter was for, but suddenly we were able to use our non-smartphone, right. our feature phones, to publish to the social web for the first time. Um, and so, you know, every time you send a tweet out, anybody that's following you gets a push notification, which was not a push notification. It was an SMS. Mm-hmm. Push notifications didn't come out until 2009. Mm-hmm. So there's a two-year lag. Uh, and so the only way to get messages pushed to a person was through SMS, which was just starting to be used in the United States, um, whereas it was big in Europe and elsewhere, and that was mostly because of cost. So um, nobody has a, a, an iPhone. Nobody has a smartphone yet. We're trying to figure out how to make this new publishing platform more relevant to our interests. And there were a couple existing behaviors that were totally essential that were already in the social web that were necessary to bring together. And I think about this sort of like a mixology. It was like the, the ingredients were there, mm-hmm. just no one had like made the Manhattan yet. And so um, uh, a couple of those things included like IRC. So Barcamp was organized primarily on IRC. So we had you know internet chat, real-time chat, basically what Slack is today, but over IRC. Protocol. Um, then we had Flickr, which had tags, the Foxonomy, mm-hmm. also delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah, the social yeah. bookmarking service also had tags. <clears throat> and interesting enough, I will give Josh Schachter um, some credit, although I didn't know this until he pointed out much later that he actually used the pound symbol in front of his tags mm. in the email newsletters from Delicious. But mm. I never saw those. Mm. Uh, so that was a side note. Um, there was also a service called Jaiku, which was built by Yuri Angstrom. Mm-hmm. And what he had was the idea of sort of these channel tags. Um, but you had to prefix uh, your message with the, the the tag, and so that meant that you know that was a way of almost you know sending a direct message to a channel, um, but you couldn't sort of have the channel in the content itself, and that was important because over SMS you had 160 character characters, you had 140 for the tweet, and you had 20 characters reserved for the username, and so you had such a small like space that you had to fit whatever you know was the topic in the content itself. Um, 
And then you also had, again, the feature phone, which had a numeric keypad. And on that numeric keypad was the asterisk and the pound symbol. Yeah. And so essentially, I had massive distribution for two possible characters right. to use for this. Right. Uh, and because IRC already used the pound symbol for channels, I was like, well, let's just put these things together. Let's take this existing install base. And now anybody who has a feature phone or can type text on their phone is able to then add one of these tags to their content. But of course, in the beginning, it didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, like, I mean, if you put a dollar sign in front of like a number, it doesn't turn it into like money right. except in reading it. And so in a similar way, like I started to do this behavior. Um, and then I, I wrote up this proposal on how I thought it could work on my blog. And I made a bunch of like mock-ups because I was a designer and um, essentially sort of showed what I thought like, you know, what became trending topics might look like that were modeled after Flickr's Explore. And, um, you know, sent out the first tweet on, um, was it August? August, August 23rd, 2007, 2007, yes. Yes, and I believe I wrote the blog post actually maybe before. Uh, was that true was it before? I don't remember. It was two days later, whatever it was. After that all happened, I did go down to South Park and I walked into Twitter's headquarters. Um, I knew uh, Blaine Cook, who's one of the engineers there, and I'd also sort of casually met some of the other engineers, and I knew Tony Stumblevine and uh, folks like that. And I remember, you know, like, I, I, I talked to Biz Stone about this idea, and he was, you know, running between, you know, investor meetings or servers melting down or, like, whatever it was, and, you know, sort of, like, try to be, you know, like, helpful. And I was like, I think I solved your problem for, like, groups and Twitter. And he was just, you know, when I explained it to him, it was just like, you know, that's that's the nerdiest, nerdiest idea I've ever heard. It's never going to work. Um, and and like, you know, because they they'd sold Blogger to Google, it just seemed to me that they were thinking about this as a Google style problem. They're going to use an algorithm to figure out what a tweet is about, and then that'll be how they allow people to subscribe to their interest or whatever. And that just seemed like that was going to, first of all, take so long they could barely keep the service up and running. And two, I need a solution now. And three, I knew that there was a developer ecosystem that would build solutions for this. And so I could go convince those developers to support the hashtag before Twitter could even like, you know, get itself out the gate. So once I was told no, well, again, that feistiness kind of like, you know, picked up and I was like, all right, it's on, you know, like, let's make this happen. And um, part of it was just doing it myself and kind of playing with the format and trying to get people to see what it was. And then um, strangely, you know, like I reached out to, to um, uh, was it Lauren Richter? Who built Tweety? I think, mm -hmm. and I, I told him about it, and like um, Echophone, and like I don't know. There's a bunch of these like you know app makers who I just reached out to directly, sent to my blog post because um, that was like the documentation, and um, before long it started like crop up in apps. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest uh, moment for me was when Semis, um, which was eventually acquired by Twitter to provide Twitter search, added support for hashtags like as a main feature. You yeah, know? and and that sort of blew my mind. Um, because now there was like a serious, you know, sort of product out there that had money, um, that was that was using this thing and that was seeing the value of it. That's interesting what you said. I don't remember the wording that you said, but it was the, it's the thing that you, the idea you had that that worked. The 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 thing that got that like it worked. Yes. Like you're, you're always throwing right. things out there right. and hoping that they get traction. Right. But that's the simplest one, and it's the one that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and I want to be clear too. It wasn't like this. Just was like this divine epiphany. Right. Right. One, one of the things that I learned from Tontech. Um, you know, he taught me, one of the other things that we were working on at the time was something called microformats, mm. of the idea of embedding data in web pages themselves mm -hmm. um, inside the markup. And what he taught me was essentially the scientific method. So, so to, 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 to understand who Tontic is, I don't know if you've talked to him, but like mm. he um, built, I believe, the rendering engine for Internet Explorer 5 on the Mac, mm. which was one of the best browsers from Microsoft, you know, of the time, maybe ever. 
And he's such a methodical thinker and his approach to everything is, is very principled. And so what he taught me was to document existing behavior, like see what people are already doing. Like, you know, do the, 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 the least, do the thing that requires the least amount of sort of um, <clears throat> new work or, to, or, or, or that requires people to learn something new or different than what they're already doing. And you can kind of like shimmy or nudge their behavior in the direction that you want. And so in a way, you know, I went out and I documented all the existing groups that were out there on the social web. I exist, you know, documented all these tags from Flickr. I documented what was happening on Wikipedia. Um, I have this whole wiki, actually. You can check it out. Uh, I think it's twitter.pbworks.com. And uh, there's a whole discussion there, actually, about... Um, about the hashtag and about groups. Mm -hmm. um, there were, there were um, I know Stowe Boyd. Stowe Boyd is the guy that kind of came up with the term hashtag. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, Stephanie, I forget her name. They were all talking, there was, there was a whole group of people talking about groups on Twitter. And I was just reading their, their, what they were saying. And they're like, just do groups like Flickr has them. It'll solve all of our problems. And these are people who are using the web to use Twitter. And I was like, that's not what the future is. Mm. The future is these mobile devices. Mm. So it has to work for SMS. Like that's the constraint, um, and and because I was able to like you know stay focused on that, um, it just sort of I think you know fell out of the you know sort of like the root structure. You know all the sort of like soil like went away, and it was like you could see clearly like what needed to happen. And then once I had that, it was easy for me to just keep advocating that. Um, I mean, what what turned out to be years. I mean, the New York Times wrote about the hashtag in I think 2011. So. You know, there's a four-year lag mm -hmm. for this very sort of small idea. And, you know, for what it's worth, I was very reluctant for a long time to sort of acknowledge my contribution to this thing. I mm -hmm. wanted this thing to, to live on its own, for it to be its own idea. And I didn't want it to be something that um, had come from a person. I, I just wanted it to exist. But um, towards the run-up to Twitter's IPO, Twitter started to act as though they were going to own and trademark uh, the, the hashtag. Mm. And... Again, sort of in my open source ethos way, yeah. I was like, you know, fuck that. Like, I forgot that, yeah. You know, and so I, I took on this mantle. You know, it's sort of like, it was like my Batman moment where it's like, okay, like I can't just kind of sit by and let this company own this thing when the whole point was to create a bigger ecosystem, to create a bigger pie, to create a different, like if you think about uh, if you have a sports, if you have like a football team, but there are no other teams, like you're not going to make a lot of money. But if you create the NFL, yeah. like that's amazing. And that's what I wanted to do with the social web. I wanted there to be, I mean, not that I follow sports ball that much, but like, you know, the NFL of like, of, of, of social apps that were all interoperating and sharing together. Just like, you know, if you're a Verizon customer and I use AT&T, we can call each other. Yeah. Why can't we do that with the social web? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you know, here we are. There's ready a, to break the whole thing up. That's another, right, <laughs> today, apparently. Um, we're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One Password. One Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone 
iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. One password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using one password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the one password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor you Using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. In the time that you'll allow, um, I'm going to, and acknowledging I'm alighting over the next decade of your career, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm curious to what what degree you're willing to talk about. Um, What are you interested in right now? Because I feel like there's a sense of transition going on right now. Yeah. uh, You know, it's funny. This will probably freak out many of your listeners, but um, I went and I got an aura reading today uh, Mm. at the Whitney Mm -hmm. and um, like... The woman of you know whether there's any scientific proof it doesn't really matter it's more like what it reflects or brings up <clears throat> you in that moment yeah you know she's like oh you seem to be at a crossroads I was like, yeah oh my god it's so accurate um <laughs> yeah you know like <laughs> i i packed all my stuff up um in february i became a digital nomad mm-hmm. um my sort of dream which i wrote about in 2006 to to become a um like a vagabond hacker and be able to go anywhere in the world with these co-working spaces like mm-hmm. you know now is somewhat being realized and um what i'm both excited about and also have a lot of trepidations about is how human connection and relationships are are changing and being reformed um, in the era of AI and machine learning. And I think the way that we, my, my, my current uh, approach in thinking is like, we need to do a lot more work to develop the connection of an individual to him or herself um, to sort of create a, a, a foundational you know, place where you feel safe and secure. And then that'll create a better way for people to relate to each other, uh, to interrelate to each other. And that then there's a context for um, sort of artificial intelligences or, um, you know, computerized entities that we will also have relationships with. And um, it's already happening, obviously, with like, you know, the God bots, the Alexas and the the Googles and so on. Um, But the relationships that especially young people are going to have to those products are going to change the way that humans interact with each other. And if we think the outcomes of social media you know, have been bad uh, or deleterious, to use a, a large word. Um, 
I'm very concerned about the seductiveness of these uh, artificial intelligent agents. Uh, In what way? Uh, I, I, like so, I was at an event this week at BetaWorks um, called Synthetic Media, um, and we're starting to create influencers that are pure CGI representations. Um, you know, even the company that I worked on um, that I took through Y Combinator called Molly was intended to sort of create you know an AI that knows about your friends in a way that uh, Alexa and the Google Assistant don't. Um, and they're starting to be able to, you know, you can imagine like if you just watch the conversations in dating apps, let's say, like I have no idea what the privacy policy is around conversations on Tinder or something like that, but let's say those that are the most you know, interesting or the most compelling um, could be mined to create bots that uh, are able to provide you with a dating experience. One behavior within dating apps that currently exists is that people will use these apps and they'll never actually meet up. Yeah. They just you know, find that there's some sort of human connection and they have a conversation and that's it. Um, I know in Asia, uh, having relationships with virtualized characters is very common and very normal. And at the same time, we seem to be going through this loneliness epidemic. And so you can sort of address that problem through virtualized relations, but then what does that do to the individual in terms of the ability to have conflict, uh, to manage conflict, to manage um, self-realization or growth or development? So there's this humane aspect um, that I'm really interested in in terms of where technology goes next and what it does to us and what we do to it. And one of the ways I've been thinking about this is to I guess ask the question of, of what would it mean for us to uh, relax or remove the dichotomy that we think exists between ourselves and our technology. What if we think of ourselves as technology, you know, like human technology, and we are upgrading ourselves in terms of our emotional capacity or yeah. our ability to empathize? What if we went back 15 years and instilled the creators of the the social media platforms that we all use today with more of these with more EQ, mm -hmm. what would the world look like? And so for me, it's very important to think about how we could do that now so that the generation that's the creating, yeah. while we're on the cusp of creating the machine learning and AI you know, next-gen products, because a lot of the people who are in those fields are not doing it because they necessarily like, care about or want to interact with you know, the chaos and the, the randomness of, of human behavior. And yet that's what creates so much resilience mm -hmm. in society and culture. And so unless we're actually designing for that and supporting those humane elements in our technology and software, we will eradicate it, which will actually make us less, will make us more susceptible, uh, I think, to distortions in you know, leadership and so on. Uh, you're already seeing like a shift to the right in a way because the way that they communicate is more clear than a more liberal approach, which is more diffuse and confusing and there's more context and, and that's harder to, to get in a soundbite. So, those are all things that I'm concerned about, but I think <clears throat> I'm hope, hopeful that maybe AI, um, if we use it effectively, can actually, you know, solve for or preserve more of our humanity, even as we become more ensconced in that technological technological mm. milieu. You said over text last night something about a, a Burning Man experience <laughs> that put you on this path. Was that a joke or? No, that was real. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you don't have to share it, but I'm just curious. Like, well, I think it would be useful for your listeners. Even right. though we didn't quite um, go. You know, we 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 did gloss over quite a bit because after I left Google, you know, my my having lost the battle against Facebook, um, I, I kind of didn't know what to do with myself, and I was like, well, I don't have a mission anymore. You yeah, know, we lost, um, <clears throat> and so at that point, you know, I needed to go through a reboot personally and and uh, emotionally and. 
discover myself, frankly. And um, although it's a cliche, you know, cliches come from somewhere. And so I did go to Burning Man and um, I had a number of formative experiences, um, both with alternative like relationships and illicit materials and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, I think developed this deeper sense of my capacity. I mean, the way that I succeeded in Silicon Valley for the first 10 years or so was by being much more rational and much more analytical, um, being very abstract. Mm. And that was one of the problems that I had in high school where I just couldn't connect to the material because I was always thinking about big picture things. Uh, I think after Burning Man and for the next several years through a series of both experiments and, and failures and so on in relationships and learning more about myself, I become much more able to tap into, I think, my emotional side um, and to, to lean into a, a deeper affinity for and compassion for other humans and other people. Human, it's happened to your humanity, which is what you were yes. just talking about. Right. Yes. So, so I guess like Silicon Valley pushed us off to like the left side of the brain. Mm -hmm. And now I'm realizing obviously that, and, and it was always there, right? I started out as an artist, mm -hmm. uh, that we need to actually shift back into the other, the other direction, into that chaos, into the unknown, into um, different ways of knowing than, than, the, 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 than the purely rational. Um, that that is where human experience sort of exists is between these two poles, these, this pendulum swinging back and forth. Um, and so I think for the last several years, I've been trying to develop and cultivate that within myself and in my relationships. Um, and so Burning Man was a big turning point for that because it allowed me to stop being defined by the work that I had done, but by the person that I could become. Mm. And um, that was incredibly valuable and transformative for me. Um, and really, I think both changed and saved my life in a lot of ways. Well, I have absolutely no idea what that's going to lead to, but Chris, I, whatever it is, I, I'm sure it's going to be fascinating for you and for people watching. We'll be back here in 10 years. We'll exactly. Have a conversation about it. Uh, thank you, sir. Yes, I appreciate it.